Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at Audible, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres. And uh, it's a great way to listen to books if you're in your car on the way to work, if you've got your headphones on, you're on the subway, if uh, you're too lazy to pick up a book and read it you know, with your eyes in the traditional manner, you can have someone read it to you. It's kind of nice. Are you an insomniac? Maybe you can listen to an audio book in the middle of the night while your partner sleeps peacefully. Just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash other people. Spell it out. Other and then P-E-O-P-L-E, the traditional way. Audibletrial.com slash other people. Get yourself a free audio book on the podcast. These are audio books, ladies and gentlemen. You can listen to them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is making you stop for a moment to contemplate. This is making me sit in front of a microphone. How's it going? Hope you're doing well. My name is Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles as usual. Have a great show for you today. Josh Rabb is my guest. He's the founder of uh, the Newer York Press. The Newer York. Uh, it's an experimental literary publisher based right here in LA. Josh and I are going to be talking momentarily. We had a good conversation. Uh, I was out in the desert this past weekend. It was my wife's birthday. I took her out there to uh, celebrate and to relax a little bit. And uh, it just so happened that her birthday coincided with Easter and uh, with Coachella, the music festival. The second phase of Coachella. And, you know, it wasn't actually her birthday on Easter or on Coachella. Her birthday is the 17th. Uh, so it was more like her birthday weekend. It's just the way that the calendar fell is what I'm saying. So, uh, there we were at this hotel out in Palm Springs and, uh, you know, there's all kinds of people wandering around in their Coachella uniforms, girls in their, uh, leather shorts with the, uh, flowered headdresses, 
and the guys in their fedoras. I don't know. You know, but like the, the, the Palm Springs, it's not my favorite place. I don't know what, I never know what to do when I'm there. I'm not a golfer. I don't play golf. It's hot. You know, and then you're at a hotel. I'm pale. My skin, it does not love the sun. I don't like to lie around in the sun or, or even be exposed. <laughs> I'm terrified of the sun. I want to be under an umbrella, but here's the thing. Okay. Uh, I also don't like hotel pools. Even with the umbrella, I don't want to get a lounge chair and then you're sitting there and then you're in this like circle around this pool and everyone's essentially staring at everyone else from behind their sunglasses. And then you have people uh, getting drunk and they're making noise while you're trying to lie there. And then uh, people are ordering food and they're eating this food in the hot sun. There's nothing less appealing than uh, like fish tacos in sunlight, <laughs> you know, 95 degree heat. And you've got this piece of fish wrapped in a tortilla. It's awful. It should not be happening. And then, you know, the whole Coachella thing, I don't know. I can't help but make fun of it. It's like this big music festival that has become over time. I think in it's, you know, in, in its origins, it was a good thing. But over time, it's become, uh, for Los Angeles people anyway, a kind of fashion event. You'd think these people are at a runway show. Going out to this uh, music festival. And I know for a fact that there are celebrities who hire stylists specifically for Coachella. To get them styled to be at this thing. It, you know, it seems to defeat the purpose of a music festival. From my perspective, it perverts it. And I say this having never gone, <laughs> I have no desire to go. And yet I bet had I gone and had I seen a good show, I would have enjoyed it because I do love music and I do love uh, live music. I love the live music experience. This is my problem. I'm always a dichotomy. And I think my wife and I, uh, we basically feel the same way. And uh, part of me has to wonder, are we just getting old? I think we're old. This is what's happening. And I don't want to be old and cranky. But I also don't want to be that old person at Coachella who's hanging on. <laughs> there were some of those at the hotel too. Like these like mid-40s, early 50s, wearing the same costumes. You know, it, there's something sad about that. I'm all for being young at heart. But you got to know when to let something go. And, you know, I'm at the point where if I'm going to a concert, I want it to be in a small, intimate venue. Or if I'm at some sort of larger venue, uh, I want VIP passes. I want backstage access. I don't want to be squeezed in among thousands of sweaty, drunk people. Otherwise, I'd rather stay home. <laughs> Is that too much to ask? I just want to be treated like royalty. And I want to have a special box away from people where I can uh, hang out. <laughs> I don't know. And the whole fashion thing and the desert, you know, There's something about that. Like leave, like leave the desert alone. 
That's what I kept thinking when I was out there. We're not meant to be out there. People are not. Or if we are out there, then we should be camping or living in uh, caves or teepees. Like the, uh, the Navajos or the, is that right? The Navajo or the Bedouin, <laughs> you know? And, and then like all, like all of these golf courses and the high end shopping malls in the middle of a wasteland, a lifeless scorching hot wasteland. It just seems unnatural. Uh, you know, like we're, we're, it's like we're creating this artificial world on top of this world that just wants to be left alone. Can't we just leave an ecosystem alone is my question as a species. We just can't do it. We have to be everywhere imposing our will on ecosystems. We have to put an eyesore uh, in every possible nook and cranny of the planet. I feel bad for the desert. So anyway, it was fun. I had a fun weekend. How's that for a segue? We actually had a good time. And I'm not nearly as cranky as I sound. When I'm there, when I'm in it, uh, I always try to make the best of it. And, uh, at, you know, at the very least, it was very nice to get out of the city uh, for a little while. Uh, my parents watched our daughter, so we got to have a break on that front. That was nice. I hope it was nice. I was trying to do something nice for my wife for her birthday. That was the plan. And, you know, I get worked up about that kind of stuff. Birthdays, holidays. Seems uh, weighted to me. I like, feel like I'm being tested or something as a husband. I want to do the right thing. I want to make her happy. So uh, we went out to the desert. We ate some good food. Uh, we got a massage. That sort of thing. We tried to relax, sleep. Even though we're both bad sleepers. So now uh, I'm back in Los Angeles, uh, I'm in my office and I'm frantically racing to get this week's shows done because this coming weekend, uh, I'm headed out of town again. Got another, uh, wedding in Louisiana. This is like, it's like every six months at this point, my family's so big. There's no end in sight. <laughs> it's just what we do. We just constantly go to weddings, uh, which is better than the alternative. I do have to say. So, uh, you know, it should be fun. It's just the tra you know, it's just the, uh, getting there and getting home part because we didn't get direct flights, which I hate. We couldn't get any, they were like a thousand dollars. So we have to connect in Dallas. That's a shitty airport. I've been there so many times. It's always to connect. So we got to do that. We've got a kid. Anybody who has kids, you know, you don't want to connect even without kids. You don't want to connect. So, you know, I'll be able to complain about it in detail in next week's monologue. <laughs> so you have that to look forward to. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. 
It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today, once again, is Josh Rabb. I had a really fun time meeting him and talking to him here in the home studio. He's a very bright guy. He's got a lot of energy. And uh, he founded the Newer York back in 2010. The Newer York publishes experimental short fiction. What the fuck was that? That was a dog. uh, The Newer York... (laughs) publishes experimental short fiction uh, but that strives to be uh, accessible rather than obtuse. It's experimental, but it's enjoyable, is the point. And uh, the goal uh, for them, I think, is to uh, test boundaries and to try to do some truly new things in the realm of literature. So they publish uh, artifacts, epistolaries, lists, uh, everything from recipes to fake book reviews, uh, all sorts of stuff absurdities essentially uh, with the idea of trying to loosen uh, loosen things up in the literary world that's their stated mission not a bad mission i should say and uh you know they publish books which are available nationally they host literary carnivals which include uh, performances word games and uh food and drink and they also have a very active uh, internet presence at thenewyork.com. So you're going to hear all about it uh, momentarily. And uh, let's just uh, get on with it. This is Josh Rabb, the founder of the Newer York. So I think stanzas and paragraphs are kind of fascist and they force you to think a certain way. They make you see things that certain way. You're like, this is how writing should be. This is how thoughts work. Uh, and what we try to do is screw with the form. So when you open our books, it looks all crazy. Things are upside down. Things are weird because I think that's how we see things. So for me, the New York is political because if we get people to read like that and write like that, then they'll start thinking like that and realize things aren't these structured. Like you don't have to follow the tradition of things. You can kind of open up and not listen. Yeah. I mean, there is something, I guess, inherently political in any communication, mm-hmm. literary communication. But like, you know, fascist, the paragraph... I mean, I guess like that's imposed by some sort of, I don't actually think it's fascist. Like there's no ideology or conspiracy behind <laughs> I'm it. I'm trying to, t- I was actually <laughs> trying to blame somebody. I'm like, who the fuck did this? Fucking um, like Byron. Okay. So, but you know, in terms of actually putting stuff up, like you haven't been publishing because you feel like what you're saying is too overtly political. Yeah. Uh, and then what about like, cause I was talking about this on a recent monologue, you know, the, the sense when you want to pu- put stuff up online, because I, I, I you know, I don't want to be neurotic. I don't want to be, um, you know, so self-serious or worried or whatever that I don't share stuff online. Right. You know, like you, you, sh- you shouldn't take yourself too seriously. Mm-hmm. But I also worry about quality. I don't want to put stuff up that's wasting people's time, least of all my own. So uh, do you ever have those kinds of thoughts? Like do you ever like get finicky about like sharing stuff online because you don't feel like you've spent 
enough time on it and then you, you worry about timeliness or you worry about kind of feeding the beast in order to keep people interested. I don't write I don't put a lot of my stuff online because I'm just afraid of how much how time consuming that process would be for me to organize my thoughts and then make sure they're good enough to share and so I have like private Twitters and private Instagrams where I just put like I just like get the energy out and nobody really follows me but I just get everything out so I can jump that thing of like oh I have a cool idea I'm gonna share it and then I'm okay with nobody hearing it for now the New York and and the stories I choose so you'll put stuff up on a Twitter feed with barely anybody following yeah you can do just that. to get it out you don't have any there's nothing like oh my god nobody favorited this I'm for a while, I was sharing the political stuff on the New York, and then I hired this girl who's helping me with social media, and she was like, nope, you're not going to do that anymore. And I was like, okay, so now I have this private feed where nobody follows. Interesting. Yeah, because people who are expert at that, they help you tamp down some of the emotional content of your social media, right? And, and branding. She was, like, she was like, does this have anything to do with literature or the New York? And then for a while, I, I rebelled against her, and I would like it would be like about like the Congo, and I'd be like hashtag experimental democracy, <laughs> and it didn't work out either. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, like that. I mean, it's like kind of like it's it's like the whole thing about uh, you know, uh, inserting political opinion into fiction and like using your characters as kind of a megaphone, which I always liked. It depends. It's like really got to be done delicately because then you can start to see the puppeteer, you know, and I can see right. the author. But then, you know, I mean, it's like it's sort of like the Ayn Rand thing where like you're like, oh, my God, you know, there's like a 50 page chunk of text where it's just her like, you know, screeching about uh, objectivism or whatever. But it's like, is that what it's called? Yeah. Objectivism. Okay. Yeah. Objective capitalism. Yeah. Whatever. Um, but then, you know, like George Orwell, you know, there are authors who can do that kind of stuff. Well, like uh, Vonnegut can do some of it. And but they never talk politics in like 1984. It's just he sets the scene. It's all implicit. Yeah. But, you know, and I you're think it's like, whoa, that's screwed up. Yeah. Now I care about politics. That's actually a really good audio book. Really? Like, yeah. Audio books to me are all about who reads it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them lose me because it's who just, read it. Just some British guy. Yeah. The, you know, and it was just kind of perfect. Yeah. I was on some vacation and I just like laid by the pool. And, like the sound of Big Brother. Yeah. <laughs> but it was like, it was like, a, it was a good reading. I remember that. Um, that was the last time I, I quote unquote read that book. It was, it's a good one. So, is, is listening to an audio book quote unquote reading? I think so. If it's a concentrated listen, I mean, I'll take but it. But isn't it just reading? Oh, I guess we can't call it reading either. It's like listening. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, I can I consider that I, I, I consumed the book in some way, even if it was read to me. I outsourced the actual reading process. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. So where are you from? I was born in Montreal and I grew up in Orlando and I went to high school in Santa Barbara. Oh, and then shit. I lived in New York for five years and I just moved here two years ago. Okay, so you're born in Montreal. You Canadian? Your parents Canadian? My dad's French, and my mom's from the Bronx. Okay, all over. So well, when, why'd you move around? Uh, dad moved to Florida to start a business. Dad moved to California to quit the business. And then I went to New York for NYU. Okay, what was it? And you grew up in Santa Barbara? High school in Santa Barbara. That's like Narnia, isn't it? Was it? Fucking amazing. Yeah. We we. Okay, so that's good to hear. Usually, people are like, "No, it actually sucked." It actually there was, there's parts that suck everywhere. I know, but Santa Barbara's got to be the best quality of life anywhere. I lived in Florida, went to a Catholic school. It was horrible, and then we went to a bar mitzvah in Santa Barbara, yeah. and I toured the high school just for fun, just to see what it was about. And my the girl that was I was shadowing was this beautiful girl, a cheerleader named Keely, and she was like, <laughs> and course. and for history class we skip history. And her and her friends got in a Tahoe and we drove to the top of a hill and they pulled out like a seven foot bong. And for all of history class we just smoked on the top of the hill. And then she gave me her glasses, and then I went back to my mom and I was like, I want to move here. <laughs> They're just all stoned. And then we moved, and I ended up dating Keely for a couple months. Oh my god! When I moved a year later. 
Santa Barbara. It was awesome. What it was high a school? dreamland. Santa Barbara High. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was, uh, when was I up there? I was up there a while back. Every time I go there, I'm like, why do I not go here more often? Because it's, like it's an, boring. But it, but still. Yeah. Just to be in like a, a nice, perfectly... Uh, manicured. Manicured. It's like town. a country club. It's like a giant country club. <laughs> but the mission and like, you know, the old buildings mm-hmm. and the Spanish architecture. Yeah. Santa Barbara High was like from the 1790s or something. It's a good the piece. The building of, itself. It's a good piece of real estate. So... Um, your parents creative folks? They are. My mom was a nurse and now she's a writer. Okay. She's, she writes poetry. It's right. actually awkward. She just wrote a, a poetry book called Lust and it's it's all like sex poems. Whoa. And so she's touring like adult shops and that's where she's doing all her readings. <laughs> like she's, Who she's, published it? Uh, I don't even know what it's Small called. press. Yeah. Small press. But she's getting a lot. She was just in New York Daily News for her reading at Babeland, which is like a big dildo shop and she's doing a tour <laughs> for all of them. Well, that's cool. Your mom, I mean, your parents sound like they're sort of hip. Yeah. And my dad's an artist. He was a physicist and now he makes art. Really? Yeah. So did he do well and then like quit his job and then now he's exactly. like throwing clay and then... He's doing pretty well at art too, but he's still in business. He can't leave it. He's doing weird. He's all over the place. Oh my God. Okay. So... He's like environmental stuff and then cancer research and then like his art. What did he do? Is he trying to cure cancer? He's working on a thing um, that it's like a pinprick on your skin and it finds random cancer cells floating around in the blood. So before, before they've this, even they're... landed somewhere. I just read about there uh, in the paper the other day, they were talking about how blood tests could be a new way to screen cancer and, as opposed to doing biopsies. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's earlier. So it's even before something's landed and started to metastasize. Yeah. But they say that the accuracy is not as, not quite as, as good as the biopsies yet. And you don't know where it's going. You're you like, don't. we found one. There's <laughs> right. 10 others like hidden in a crevice somewhere. Oh my God. Yeah. That's a pretty big feat. Um, so your parent, your dad sounds like a smart dude. He's a pretty smart dude. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, you went to Santa Barbara high, uh, and then you went to New York for school. Yeah. Where'd you go? NYU for philosophy and English. Okay. My dad calls me the three hundred thousand dollars spell checker. <laughs> yeah, is that what college? I'm, I have a daughter. I'm like, holy shit! How we well, NYU is absurd. Yeah, but it's, all, it's all absurd. That's true, especially if you go out of state. But, yeah, UC is uh, cheap. UC schools, yeah, but they're hard to get into. I, today in the New York Times, ninety five percent of the elite universities, ninety five percent of applicants at elite universities in the United States are uh, denied. Stanford accepted five percent of applicants oh, last year. It's all time low. So it's like the more people, like they, we just need more schools. Yeah, it seems like right. More Ivy Leagues. Open, yeah, <laughs> open a new Ivy League. Make it big. I want my daughter to have a spot. Um, yeah, and make the admissions really lenient. <laughs> open for all. Open yeah. door policy. So you go to New York. Um, fun times. Fun times until yeah, until like senior year and when then, I kind of woke up. What do you mean? Uh. I just, um, it's about the time I started the New York and I'm just, I just wasn't so sure that New York city was the hub of anything anymore. Like that's where all the buildings were for publishing. And that's where a lot of people went to be writers. But I, I mean, I tried really hard to find those group of kids where we could sit around and like smoke and talk about philosophy and, you know, plan things. But it was, it just ended up being like on Friday, Saturday night, just go to bars. It was kind of like just bars 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 all the time so my last year there i just ended up sitting inside like reading everything i could and realizing that i didn't have to be in new york to do that i could be yeah in sunny california well and you know it sounds kind of familiar i mean i think people that's anywhere though it, it was in my your, it was my wormhole that i found there my little termite yeah but i mean in your early 20s especially if you really want to get serious about books and literature and you want to do something um like dual realizations one 
Um, it's, you know, not everybody's there. A lot of people just want to go out on the weekends. Right. They want to have like serious philosophical discussions. Yeah. Um, but also, yeah, I, I did that too. It was, I had those fun times. Of course, of course. But I mean, like at some point you do, you do that enough. And I think at least if you're like me, like at some point it was like, okay, like where else are we going to go with this? Right. Uh, we've maxed it out. I've done everything I can possibly do with this. I'm not learning anything new. Yeah. Not that it's got to be about learning, but it just, and you go work at a coffee shop all day and then you spend it all on beers and nothing's gained and then you're dead. Yeah. So it's good. I think it's good and healthy that you had that realization. And then, um, the other part of the realization, which I think is something, you know, somewhat debatable is, um, you know, the, uh, the, um, power or what do you want to call it the influence that new york has as like as yeah, the, the capital of media stigma i don't know you know is that is the is it the epicenter has that it's really fascist <laughs> but i mean you know like because I, I hear you know I, i've i've had that argument because i've always been out in los angeles i've never lived in new york that you know you can be anywhere you can do stuff anywhere now but new york you know the media companies still are there i feel like if you want to get if you want to be on a track to have you know, anything resembling a quote unquote traditional big literary career it almost seems like you have to do time. But I don't know if that's true anymore. I feel it's like not we just push true. that. We're just like, it's just, it's, it's just some happen- people make it and they happen to be in New York because there's a lot of people in New York. So then we're like, New York works for, for writers. Well, it, it, I think it works from, let me put it to you this way. You can be some guy who lives in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska. And if you write a great book, doesn't and matter. It doesn't matter. But I think from a networking because like so much, yeah. of, so much of business generally, including publishing, is an inside game, and it's who you know. Mm-hmm. And I see this all the time. It's like it's so funny. Like when you start to know publishing a little bit and pay attention to the news and get to know writers, and then you see how blurbs work, and then you see how like the media coverage work, and, and then you vomit, and well, yeah, <laughs> and then you see like who's reviewing who in the New York Times book review, and you're like, wait a minute, these two know each other, and yeah. like. It's all sort of an inside, like, back scratchy kind of game, or it often is that way. So I still think New York confers some advantage in that manner. Mm-hmm. So, like, do you feel like it's good that you went to NYU? I'm sure you met a lot of people there. Actually, my one regret is not doing enough networking at the time. Me kind of being, like, a 90-year-old, like, staying in my apartment. and You sound like me, dude. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> I hate networking. I left and I realized, like, all my professors were, like, famous and really cool, and that I only, like, got close with one of them. And Like who? Um, Elaine Freegood is the one I'm thinking of. And she's like this crazy writer who does like, uh, it's called min, min, I can't even say it. Mimesis. It's like M N E M N E M E S S. And anyway, she, she's just like a genius about, on um, literary theory. But then, I, um, the famous guy I was talking about was, uh, professor block. That's just his name. And he does philosophy and he does philosophy of consciousness and he does really weird experimental philosophy where they like. Just really creepy stuff. I won't even. Not but be, somebody like a resource, a resource that you should have tapped. Yes, yeah. I, I was the same way. Like I, was, a guy that was on the Oxford Society and asked me to be on it, and I was like, oh, no, no, I'm over it. <laughs> and I'm just like, why did I do that? Just the idiocy of youth. Like I was in, uh, I was in film school at Boulder uh, when Stan Brakhage was there, like mm-hmm. the last years of his life. Just like you know, and and it's very specialized. But if you're into avant-garde film, if you're into film, period and you don't know about the guy like mm-hmm. that's that's like a hole you know but he right. was there he's like a i mean especially in the in and the what'd context, you do about it nothing I, <laughs> I, you know i was kind of there he you know i took uh you know spent some time listening to him with some of his screenings and stuff but like it, you look back hindsight's twenty twenty. like i should have been like at every single class he taught i should yeah. have been like totally like squeezing the guy for everything he knew um because like he was like and why know, aren't we like that that's what i meant by waking up from new york like why were in that time 
why didn't you do that? I think it was just like youth, like the arrogance of youth, just just plain ignorance. Yeah. Not understanding how important he was, uh, not being far enough along in my artistic career to um, understand the value of his example in terms of commitment. Mm-hmm. Because you know, I think that you know somebody who works as an uh, in art film or whatever, an experimental film. Obviously, there's not huge money in that. Um, though, you know, I think uh, after he died, his collection sold to MoMA or something for a good, you know, good amount of money. Nice. So it's sort of like when, you know, Allen Ginsberg's papers sell to some mm-hmm. university for a big amount of money. Like it's, it's kind of the equivalent. It's about as good as it gets for somebody in an experimental <laughs> film. It's always like post- after they're dead, after, yeah. Yeah, after you're dead, <laughs> postmortem. But, um, the point that I'm trying to make is that there's, it's, it's sort of a similar case in literature. And I think that, um, you know, having Stan there and, and if, you know, I learned all of this after the fact and like reading about him and reading interviews with him. Uh, it's inspiring, you know, that the guy mm-hmm. stuck to his guns. He had his vision, he had his thing, uh, and he just worked his ass off. He was incredibly prolific and uh, just like kind of never wavered. And people came around to him, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not. So no networking, he just waited. I mean, you know, he had academia to support him. He struggled, you know, he lived up in the mountains. I mean, he was like, a, he had to be, he was a totally eccentric guy. Mm hmm. Um, but he was gifted and, you know, these hand painted films that, that he did in particular, I don't know if you're, I haven't seen them, no. but he took, you know, actual celluloid and then he went and bought like Crayola markers at the grocery store and he sat there and, and each colored one. each frame. But then when you run them through a projector, it looks like some sort of abstract painting that's breathing. It's really beautiful. So if like the Criterion collection has like a, a whole, like they have all of on Netflix. Films. Um, Criterion Netflix. I, I I don't know if he's available on Netflix, but I know you can buy. Like I I have somewhere. It's actually sitting right there by Brackage <laughs> in Anthology, nice. the Criterion Collection. They have like you know on DVD yeah. all of his uh, you know all of his stuff, and you can watch a lot of those. But you know it's it's a different kind of film watching. You're mm-hmm. just you're sort of sitting there for a long time. <laughs> you have to like take it. It's like <laughs> looking at a piece of art rather than like where's exactly where's this going? It's like a museum piece almost. You know. But um, anyhow, so New York. Um, you know, you, you have this like waking up period, like, were you thinking as a young, uh, student, like, I'm going to do something in new media. I'm going to start my own magazine. Like when did that idea flower for you? It started in a class, uh, on Lord Byron's poetry. And he had this line, my book's over there. I could grab it, but it's, it's in the opening lines. Um, and it's just about getting weird like he wrote this in the 1700s and he was like this is the age of oddities let loose use your human tools to to make something weird and i was just looking at it and it it struck me that he was like speaking to me through time and then i right then i started because at the time i had this you know um the new yorker was like my anathema i just what do you think of the new yorker you must you must have a thing the cartoons are almost all great yeah everything else to me is so I just find I find that it's I find it first of all if I had access to the writers they have access to I'd be the biggest lip mag in the world like anybody that grabs every Pulitzer Prize winning writer they can get and is like here we're we're really top class lip mag like that's not hard to do when you've been around for two hundred years and you're owned by Condé Nast right so the main thing that pisses me off is like the the, the culture the culture of like just having horrible customer service to people that are submitting and like because and so I, I just wanted the New York to be kind of the inverse of that I thought. Uh, when the did New Yorker, ever, did you ever submit to the New Yorker? I submitted one piece, and they wrote back and said no. With like just this, just like the the form letter, and that was like two months ago, just uh, for fun. Oh, okay. yeah. It was I, recently, it wasn't like a begrudging thing. Like I've been submitting for years, and I was like, <laughs> I suddenly hate them, and I have a philosophical reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just I, I 
I'm a poet. When I write, I usually write poetry. Even if it's politics, I write it in poetry form first and take out the line breaks. And um, I started reading some experimental writing after that Lord Byron wake-up call that there are other ways to do things, just take tools and do things. And um, and then I got stoned for four months in my room and made the New York book book one. That was it. That was it. That was the genesis. That was the genesis. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay, so you make the book first, right? Yeah, it was book zero because I wasn't sure if it would happen again or what I was doing. Yeah, because I remember when this was coming online, there was like a... Was it? I mean, I'm, forgive me if I'm not remembering this. Okay. It wasn't like a PDF, but it was like a, it was like a slick presentation. It wasn't just like a website. It was like a book. This was way back when. Really? I don't know. Maybe. I feel like I got something. You might be thinking of like issue, issue.com or something. Maybe that was it. But I remember scrolling through pages, and it was mm-hmm. like it was like when you look at the New Yorker on the New yeah. Yorker app. It wasn't like a website per se, but it was like just a book a digital oh, presentation yeah. is that what you did yeah we ha- we have something like that okay so we send them around to like reviewers and stuff to be like flip through okay so maybe i got that in the email but you started um by doing a book first and then you were like i'm gonna do a website i did print first because it gives you some credibility um there it's a dime a dozen also to be a lit mag but it's also it's more of a dime it's a penny a dozen it's a penny <laughs> a dozen to be uh to be an online lit mag only no shit yeah. so i was like i'm gonna do a book and see how it works it didn't work that well I got a one-way ticket to Paris, to like a farm outside of Paris, and I disappeared for like five months. And then when I came back, I had a bunch of orders. How did you do this? You just went to a farm? Do you know uh, woof.com? No. Worldwide Organization of Organic Farmers. Oh, yeah. You know what? I talked yeah. to uh, Catherine Lacey. It's sweet. And she did that down in New Zealand. Yeah, it's I think, amazing. I think that's the organization. She did something similar. There's one in, in every country has their own. So you're just like, I'm going to go work on an organic farm in France. Yeah, it was a cow farm, cattle farm, because I'm really afraid of cows and I wanted to get over my fears. So I got a one-way ticket and stayed with this Swiss guy on this like, chateau. Interesting. And I was I was the pregnant cow. Take, who, uh, take uh, who else was afraid of cows? I mean, so many people, they're so I scary. I think T.S. Eliot was desperately afraid <laughs> of cows. I'm not kidding. Look it up online. Somebody look that up online and email me if I'm right. T.S. Eliot was afraid of cows. But... Uh, why afraid of cows? Did he die? Yeah. Did he? <laughs> T.S. Eliot? Wait, who am I thinking of? Uh, T.S. Eliot wrote The Wasteland, like 1922. So who's, been... the guy, who's the guy from uh, Santa Barbara who wrote The Tortilla Curtain? Oh, T.C. Boyle. T.C. Boyle. <laughs> <laughs> he is not afraid of cows, okay. to the best of my knowledge. He's been on the show. Um, yeah. Sorry, what were you asking? Uh, well, I don't know. What was Oh, the, the organic farming. Yeah. Why are you afraid of cows? I mean, I see you have cows next to your computer. I love cows. <laughs> um, I think they're frightening because they're huge and stupid and very skittery. They're like a cockroach, <laughs> except they're like 6,000 See, pounds. okay. I, cause I, he's referring to – I have some cow figurines on my desk that I keep as like a talisman. My wife got me these years ago when she was back at her grandparents' place in Kansas. Did you just insult talisman? Is it, it's not like lucky charm? Did I misuse that word? I'm just thinking – I thought it was like the Jewish – like. Never mind. Okay. It's like a shawl, I thought. Anyway, a prayer shawl. I think it's like a lucky charm. That's okay. what I meant. That's the way that I intended the, the usage. But my point is that the reason I, I think I like cows is because they're, they, they seem so docile to me. And like, you can just like walk up to one. No? Have you been on a cow farm? Not recently. No. Yeah, I haven't either. And no, you like walk through and they, they do the one eye thing where the one eye looks at you and it's like bigger than, <laughs> you know, your face. It's a huge eye. And then, then they just make this horrible guttural noise. It's not, it's not like, it's like, and they're just so stupid and scared. And they, you know, some of the bulls do a charging thing and to walk through a herd of them and all you have is a wood stick to protect yourself. Yeah. 
is and did you get over it no no but i but i became comfortable with it enough to do that every morning okay so you show up in france you go to this chateau where in what, what city what town um the village was called Ligle, but it's like 80 people it was outside like how far outside of paris oh hour by train uh two hours by train one hour hitchhiking guy picked me up at some community center and drove me into the mountains so you like, speak french not very well but enough like functional yeah that's he was I, swiss too so he had they can all speak english yeah you know but i can speak like functional you know i, I understand oh <laughs> shit all right hang on we're still recording we're hot yeah <laughs> sorry about that just kicked over the uh uh what is it the headphone amp the but, thing um yeah i understand more than i can actually speak yeah i'm very two-dimensional in my speech also, I got really good at French, and then I, I got really good at French. Sounds weird. And then I realized that everybody was talking about like going to the club and just stupid things. When I wanted to think they were like talking about philosophy right. again. Again, there's this constant theme of me wishing everybody was smarter. And right. And so I stopped trying because I liked being sitting in a cafe and writing and just hearing like. Yeah. And just like cool. That's all that's happening. You're you know all really I, interesting. You know what I always like? I always like looking at the little French children, like when they're out with their mothers, and you know they always dressed really well. And there's something great about that. The first time we went to France, because I studied abroad there at during NYU, and my friend Jesse and I we were walking across the street, and this lady was screaming at her dog, and it was like doing tricks, and we were like, that dog knows more French than us. Like we have so much work to do. It was like understanding complex commands. <laughs> Where did you study abroad? Uh, it was in Paris. At the Sorbonne? No, it was at NYU. They have a school there. Oh, they do? Yeah, they're creepy. They're trying to get 55% of their students off of the American mainland by like 2016 or something. And you can, what, you can just go to Paris and hang out? Yeah, they have a huge building. They also have an Abu Dhabi, Ghana, like Barcelona, all over the place. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay, but where, what part of Paris is that? It's in like a, the really fancy part. I think it was the 16th arrondissement. Uh-huh. Just super fancy. Okay. Yeah, that's like the Champs-Élysées. And... Yeah, it's right there. All right. I didn't know that. So was it a fun semester abroad? It was It was all right. It was all right. How do you do with the French girls? They don't like American guys. They're not a fan <laughs> of American guys. Uh, I sort of expect, you know, I was I was there when I was young. Um, it's not what you hear. I, you know, but I'm, I was not, I feel like to my credit, I didn't show up thinking that I would be some big hit. I did. You did? <laughs> <laughs> I was timid. I was always very shy with girls, you know, when I was uh, younger. I wish I wasn't. I wish, like, looking back, I wish I was bolder, you know, but I was always just like. But I, I went there, like, you know, on some sort of, like, uh, writerly fantasy thing, like, which is embarrassing to say. No, the truth. I was, yeah. Totally. Everybody should try it. Well, you know, Paris is a great city. Like, I know that it's not the same as it used to be. I know that it's become more, what, you know, it's become more homogenized with the rest of the Western world and blah, 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 but it's a beautiful town. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a good, so lovely. It's inspiring to be someplace where there's like that deep of a sense of history and that deep of a sense of art history. And it's got a vibe to it. It like exudes something like yeah. that whole thing that there's, I heard some guy talking about how things like escargot and absinthe only taste good within the bounds of France. Yeah. And there's something about it where you're just like, yeah, it's, yeah. like there's so much, you're so laden with history and like movies well, that and, things taste better and feel better. Yes. That's the thing. There's such a rich cultural history and like you become informed by that. And then I think that, um, I really do think that, you know, if you dig into the literature that came out of there or you spend time there, it does get into you in a real way. Mm -hmm. That's not just like your head playing tricks on you. No, there's a there's a fully structured like world that the writing from there, like uh, 
Flaubert's writing or, or whatnot, like really builds around you. Yeah. Okay. And then like, the, and not just in Paris either. I think that the country, I think the country of France is beautiful. Mm-hmm. I love France. It's so nice. I don't understand these people who like hate on like America. There's a lot of American hatred for France. Because that's it, another ingrained thing we're yeah, just like, taught to be because like, it's like effeminate or it's like too they don't appreciate socialist. us enough it's so yeah that drives me crazy um so anyway we're no, the french hate back anyway yeah and the french hate back <laughs> it's just weird i've always been like i like them i never had and this is the other thing people are always like you know the french are so rude i never experienced that yeah ever i've never in you know my, that's not true of any generation or population ever anywhere there's always asses and exactly. there's always, like <laughs> That's the dumbest argument. It's like people saying that about New York. New, you go to New York City. People Pe- are mean. People are mean. It's like, no, they see 300,000 people a day, and they might not be, like, the most welcoming all the time, <laughs> right. but they're fine. Oh, my God. Okay. So, uh, anyhow. you so go, books. Yeah, books. But you go to this uh, cow farm. Mm-hmm. Were you retreating? Were you thinking, like, oh, my God, I failed at this literary magazine, and I'm going to go, like, take a time out in France? Or I didn't view it as a failure because the – there was just the New York one was just like my like fuck you before I left. Am I cussing too much for your no, podcast? It doesn't okay. matter. Um, and so no, I didn't I didn't view it as a failure, and it was a retreat. I definitely at the time I was really into biology, and so I bought a lot of really like fringy biology books. And yeah. there was this big oak tree that I would just sit under and read when I was done with my stuff. How woofing works is you only have to work like six hours a day or something, and then you can do whatever you want. All right. So I would take bike rides all along. Can like, you bring a three-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually you can. They have full family things. Most of the places have like, because their farms have extra houses, and they're like, bring whoever. Dude. Really? As long as you help them in the garden, they'll give you food. Put my daughter to work. Yeah. Get her to herd some cattle. <laughs> that's for sure. That sounds safe. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that's... So not, it was that, retreaty, yeah. That, but that's good. But right before I left, I fell in love with a girl. Oh. And so, is that still going? Part of the retreat was me trying to find Wi-Fi so we could video chat, which is hard out there. Um, yeah, it's still going. I moved back for her, and we're living together. Holy shit! Okay, yeah, yeah. did you guys meet in New York? Met her in line for graduation, walking across the stage. She was like in line with yeah, you, like in our gowns, and you'd never seen her before. I'd seen her around. You had, yeah. You, I mean, NYU is a big school, so it's possible that you could. It's only fifty-four thousand people. That's it. Yeah, yeah of course you're gonna. <laughs> of course, you're... we ran it all the time. So you're in line, uh, gra- about to graduate, and what's the chit chat like? Just like, oh, I can't believe we're graduating. No, I'm with my friend, and I really stupidly like hit him and was like pointed at her and was like, "Do you know her?" And like, I was close <laughs> enough for her to hear me. And then he like introduced us, and we just because it was one of those windy things where the, there's so many people that it, you know winds up like snaky. Yeah. And and then I saw her at a party three days later, and I asked my same friend, I was like, "What do I say to her to make her like me?" And he was like, "Kale and yoga." And I was like, "That's <laughs> lame, but I'm gonna try it." And I sat down and we talked for a bit, and then I was like, uh, "After I pick up some kale from the farmers market tomorrow, you want to go to a yoga class?" <laughs> she was like, "Yes." And that was our first date. No, no way. That did together. work. It worked. Guys, out. listening. <laughs> Kale and yoga. Uh, see, I've done yoga for years. Uh, we were talking about this before we came on the air. I uh, had a bad back. I still sort of have a bad back. It's gotten better, but like that was how I got into it. Me too. And really? Yeah. Like lower. I back? had a bad. It had a lower back injury. And... All right. Well, so you get into it, and then it's nice. Like yoga is nice. You get like a good feeling. Mm-hmm. That's a real thing. Mm-hmm. I think. Like the yoga high or whatever. The high. Yeah. Um, Endorphins. So you take this girl to a yoga class. What I was uh, what I was going to say is that uh, for single guys, especially. You know, who might say, you know, yoga is too effeminate for me or it's just lame or whatever. It's it, the ratio is really good. It's mostly women in there. What are you doing, guys? <laughs> like you can be chi if you want to and you can be a perv if you want to. And in both cases, you're getting exercise. I'm not advocating being a pervert, but it's a good place to meet women. And you're like the only guy. And like, you know, though, I think some women would sort of say, like, I don't want a yoga dude. 
Right. They want some guy who's like hunting or something. You know, I don't know. At the time I met my girlfriend, she was dating a yoga teacher. Oh my god. Yeah, so it was weird. She's super spiritual. No. Are no. you super spiritual? I mean, I don't, does super add anything to the meaning? I don't know. Uh, what, like, what's your situation there? What's my situation there? Well, I've been listening to lots of the podcast Skeptics Guide to the Universe, right. and it's kind of made me really cynical about everything. <laughs> and like, so like every time somebody's like, "I like fish," I'm like, "What do you mean like? Like, what is that feeling you have?" Yeah. And so spiritually, I'm very torn between like liking acupuncture and yoga, and I'm 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 brain centered, so it's all how how you feel about. Um, I'm not sure compassion yeah be nice just don't be a dick just don't be a dick. like when i that's really the thing about politics we were talking about before everything about it to me comes back to my spiritualism which is just like why would you waste your time on any of that any of that war and like why, like right. there's so many things i want to do with the we're world that are dead. big for writers for poetry for all this stuff and not one of it is like i really want to like you know attack the new york the new yorker <laughs> or i don't know it's just like just anger for unknown reasons yeah no, I just, I mean, I, I think my whole thing is like this, like kind of acute sense of mortality, time running out. Like, why would, I can't bother myself with this. Like, don't you realize? Yeah. <laughs> what are you wasting We're going to be gone soon. I, I often have that feeling, like if not daily, but, and I think that's healthy, you know, like I don't, I don't mean to imply that like it's, I'm super morbid, but I think like it's very easy to lose sight. I think there are people out there who just don't even think about it don't even think about it and maybe their life is in some way easier somehow like within the context of the way life works now yeah i don't know i mean my main spirituality that i've been working on with my girlfriend lately is you know how we're we're neurotic everybody's neurotic everybody has problems everybody thinks about things everybody has their weird personal dramas and it's important every time you meet someone to remember that they have that much complexity going on in them too right so if they're acting angry or if they're acting whatever it's important to have that compassion to be like, oh my God, they have a whole life. They have whole families. They have whole friends. They have whole dramas. It can be, you know, that's a good point because it can be really easy to judge people. Off of one thing. Off of one thing and to be pissed off because they failed you in some way or, you know, some interaction you had with them failed to, you know, live up to your expectations or whatever. But, you know, that's missing the complexity mm -hmm. and, and not understanding like common humanity. Mm -hmm. Like they're just like, you know. Simplifying. We're all, we're all the same. Yeah. Everyone, aren't you in a good mood? What's that quote? You know, be kind to everyone you meet because everyone's fighting like a mm -hmm. terrible battle or a, something like that. Something like that. <laughs> I, like I the, don't know if terrible is the adjective. But. <laughs> horrible time. They're having a horrible day. <laughs> There's the Walt Whitman quote, the every, uh, do I contradict myself? I do. I contain multitudes. Yeah. And I think about that a lot. Everyone does. Yeah. Everyone's just. Um, so do you, did you, I mean, philosophy had to have, like your philosophy study had to have informed your worldview so much. Who's, who are some of your philosophers? I don't know enough. I about mean, them. if I was religious, McLuhan would be, Marshall McLuhan would be like my, my God, my, not my God, my preacher, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. Um, he was someone who really changed the way I saw the world. How so? Um, back to that MSNBC and Fox and waking up to the media of media. Yeah. And like he, he had this whole, I mean, my sister gave me his book, um, understanding media and it, and it worked from, he started from a shovel as media. It's like an extension of your body and you're using it cause you don't have a shovel. And he worked that up and he worked all the way up to like pretty much telephones and how we use tools to like touch the world. And, um, to him, media builds a, an architecture around people, music, um, podcasts, podcasts <laughs> right now. Are you listening? <laughs> the medium is the message people. Yeah, pretty much that. That was yeah. his tagline that got thrown around, which I still don't understand what it means, but it's okay. 
Um, yeah, it is one of those ones where you're like, yes. People what quote it because it sounds cool, but it doesn't I, mean shh. I agree with it, but I have no idea what it means. It doesn't it's mean anything. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not sure I can articulate it. I, he, I went through a period. He reading. made me really critical. Yeah. Which I, which when I talk about waking up a lot, it's things like that. There's certain writers, like Marx was one of them, even though I'm not a Marxist, but his writing just made me wake up to things. Like, like something I loved, capitalism, or something I loved, TV, Marshall McLuhan and Marx. Like, just... I don't know. Gave me a different place to look at it. The Dalai Lama is a Marxist. Is he? I mean, in his philosophy, he's not a com. You know, he's not like a Stalinist. Right. Like, I think that people get these things confused. But like, I read there was a quote online. I went through some link hole. You know what I'm saying? Where you're like, <laughs> tr- and I don't even know how I got there. But it was like an interview he did. And you know, the I don't eyes want- busting open the door. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think his philosophy, and and that would make sense from a Buddhist perspective. It's more of a communal philosophy economically, as opposed to like this rampant capitalistic, you know, philosophy. But. Um, I don't know why. I guess I found that interesting. I haven't read any Marx. Mm-hmm. Should I read him? It's interesting to me because I was, you know, we heard about the Red Scare and we hear about communists on like Fox all day long. But I decided to pick up the manifesto and figure out what it was and also some of his essays. And it's all, there's no real Marxism. It's all about capitalism, which is why it shocks me that it's not taught just as a text. Like, hey, here's a guy who knew capitalism more than anyone in the world. And wrote about it in like an interesting well, way. The, but these concepts have been here. We go back into politics, but these concepts have become perverted. So you have socialism, and then they like well, tag it to the Nazis. Again. They tag it to the Nazis. It's like, do you know why? He talks about it in one of his books. Marx's first essay here was called "It's called the Jewish Question" or something, and it was about Judaism in Germany. And not only did Hitler quote it, which didn't help, but when it was translated here, <laughs> never it was translated when, never as the Jewish when, problem. It never helps when Hitler quotes something. <laughs> no, it pretty much kills whatever's been said. Um, but yeah, so it's like, you know, Marxism gets ruined by like the failed communist experiment and all of the awful things that happen under Stalin and so on. And I don't think it should be the political system. I just think it should be accepted to talk about. Well, and like, but the thing is, is that we shouldn't abandon all of the ideas contained within it. Right. You know, some of these ideas are probably good. Like, and it's so, a good way to look at things. Yeah. Like, inst- you know, it drives me crazy. Like the simplicity, you know, the simplisticness, if that's a word of, of people's thinking around this stuff. And it like, is. And well, the, they don't want to spend the time reading the book. They're just like... And, it was and bad it, for America. Well, and it's just like this reactionary, like infantile fear, yeah, of something that might change <laughs> your mind. Uh, Who else? I feel like I'm caffeinated. But uh, okay, so let's get back to uh, the newer York. <laughs> and we just got trippy. You met your girlfriend. The newer still York. together. That's sort of a romantic story. I like that story. And we were abroad for we were apart for a year. And but you had an epistolary relationship. We had an epistolary relationship. We still have a box full of letters. Okay, but see, okay. And here's what I'd say, I would say about that. I think that actually sounds like a good way to get to know somebody. It was. I mean, you test, first of all, you test the strength of interest. Uh, second of all, you really get to know somebody when you read their writing. I have long contended, and I'm sure there's got to be some version of this existing on the internet somewhere, mm-hmm. that like dating services should make more hay out of like either epistolary exchanges or literary, um, mm-hmm. some sort of literary dating site where you have nerds exchanging letters and book you quotes know, quotes like books because but uh, like really reading one another right because when you really read someone's thoughts especially in volume you know you get to know them in a way that going out on dates doesn't do most of the time exactly mm-hmm. and so i mean that's like why don't we i mean because i feel like um you, you get a sense of a person that way like you get you can get a sense of a person by like them telling you like some of their favorite books you get a sense of them telling you uh their, their fears the, the music <laughs> Their fears of Marxism and Hitler. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I feel like that's kind of a cool way to get to know somebody, in the, especially in the early going in a relationship. And so um, you come back 
you you moved from New York to the West Coast. Moved from New York to the West Coast. That was actually a- no. I I moved out when I went to Paris. I got a one way ticket, and then I, when I came back, I came to California. Was, was was that the plan, or was that plan hatched on the cow farm? That Michelle and I, Michelle's my girlfriend, was a fling before we left, and it got more and more serious as I was in Paris. And I was just like, okay, I got my fix. I'm ready to move in and ask this girl to come with me. Whoa. So she was teaching in Brooklyn at the time. And what did, did you write her a letter and say you want to go to California? No, I flew out there and we were really drunk one night and I was eating cheese puffs and I was just like, move in with me. And she was like, what? And then we didn't really talk about it. And then a year later she moved in. <laughs> There's not much talking about it. And then she quit her job and got a plane ticket. And then, okay. So wait, but you got back from Paris and mm-hmm. then broached the subject of her moving in. And then it was another year after that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it took some time. It took a lot of time. So a lot had, of letters. We have a lot I was going to say, so you had an epistolary relationship in Paris. from France to New York, and then you had an epistolary relationship from California to New York? Mm-hmm. And we got creative. We would do things like we'd have like little poster boards that we would write one line on, fold, and paperclip, and then fold it back and forth, that thing, yeah. so you don't know what anybody's writing, and then we'd have whole stories written together and we'd, we'd get we'd get weird with it it sounds romantic yeah I she's a good card maker too so she would make some really crazy i stuff. feel like young women out there might be swooning right now good yeah guys i mean but i do feel i feel like this is uh you know is this where i go go to the new york.com <laughs> <laughs> your brand is really being enhanced by this um okay so so you come we like epistolaries yeah, you come out to get to California. Oh yeah you mean you like to publish them yeah we publish a lot yeah i like that too i like it's I, weird how just adding deer and from changes everything well i find that it's helpful as a writer to like loosen me up like i think that um to write to someone to write to somebody it's amazing because once you have like like an actual you know um clear idea of who you're writing to who your audience is mm-hmm. uh, it's something there, there's a greater immediacy maybe in the writing you're talking in your own voice a little bit more somehow I think your first point was right. It's that you're talking to someone. You have your audience right there, and it's not like this. Like, am I writing to the ether? Am I writing to myself? Am, am I... I writing to the world? Yeah, you have these like because I think like these grandiose feelings of like everyone might read this. Who's gonna like it? Yeah. Who's not gonna like it? Yeah. Which is yeah. Those are two sides of the same coin. So I think that can actually be paralyzing and unhelpful. And it's like just pick like one person or a few people mm-hmm. and think of them as you're writing. Right. And write and write to them. Mm-hmm. When I do politics, I used my first politics blog was called Dear Dad. Because him and I always fight politics, so me and my would, dad. My dad's a conservative. Yeah, my dad too. Is he? Yeah, that's weird. You know, like it's like I mean, we get along, and like I, I think it's been also kind of helpful because, you know, it's taught me to try to understand. Mm-hmm. You have to have like some basic respect. Like, okay, we're not going to see eye to eye on this. But um, is your dad like more of a libertarian, or is he like full on like Fox News conservative? No, he's not full on Fox News conservative. He's he's pretty aware. He just stuck with Fox News because that's. <laughs> I don't know. They're going to make you feel better. Yeah. They really are. It's less of a headache. (laughs) Your old knees don't hurt so much anymore. (laughs) Um, I don't know what he is. He's as confused as me. Okay. But you have like a healthy debate. It's not like this bitter. Well, sometimes he's like, shut up. I don't want to talk about this anymore. (laughs) And then like a week later, I'll get an email. Like, I was just kidding. I just didn't feel like talking about it then. Do you you think? Because like, you know, you rarely hear the inverse where it's like the parents are liberal and the kid is conservative. (laughs) I always wondered if that exists. I mean, it's a pastor. There was a show before your time called uh, Family Ties. Yeah. Alex P. Never heard of it. You never heard of it? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Michael J. Fox played Alex P. Keaton, who was like a Reagan Republican. Mm. Uh, and his parents were like, you know, former hippies or whatever. So it does exist. Well, <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, I just, I'm sure, it, and I'm sure it does. I just, you don't hear as much about that. It's always like the parent is a conservative and the kid strays. Um, yeah. What's, what's with that? Like you think if you have kids 
uh, or, you know, my daughter. I sometimes think about this because I think, like, if you're too doctrinaire or dogmatic, did I just use the word doctrinaire correctly? If you, if you, try, to, what it meant. If you try to impose your views, mm-hmm. whatever they may be, on your child and you do it with too much force, they're likely to rebel at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, also there's no theory. There's no, like, equation that always works out because then you get the opposite where you, you push it a lot and they end up totally hippie too yeah whatever. yeah yeah i mean i think it's all in the, i think it's all in the delivery you know there are certain values like when i think about this from a parental perspective like there are certain values that i think my parents wanted me to have and i think i have those mm-hmm. even if they don't see it like sometimes i think my dad worries that like i've because i'm not a church goer who you want me to be don't you see it? <laughs> i'm telling you but it's like i no matter how hard i try i'm like listen i got the values i just it's the the dogma that i'm not into right um, or some of this other stuff, you know, it's not central. It's not the, 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 the good stuff got through. Um, yeah, you'll never convince me of that. Never. Yeah. I'm, you know, there's something f- like flawed about it, you know, but I, I feel like with my daughter, like there are certain values that I want her to have, but I'm going to be very gentle in my approach to like, you know, that sort of thing, political stuff, mm-hmm. religion. Like I was, were you raised religious? No, I mean, we're Jewish, but like really fake Jewish. Like, like Christmas tree Jews? Uh, Hanukkah bush. Yeah. Hanukkah. <laughs> Get it right. Um, <laughs> uh, I remember once my dad was trying to do something for Passover and it's supposed to be God revealed himself unto the people. And my dad said God relieved himself unto the people and started doing like the swing and dick like motion. And so that was my <laughs> my experience with religion. Okay. And I was bar mitzvah, but it was in the basement of a Marriott from a from a See, I think the bar mitzvah sounds great. You get all this money. Like, that's yeah, I donated it all. You did? Yeah. For real? Yeah, I give half to the Galapagos Research Foundation for evolution. Look at you. And then half to... At the age of 15 or whatever? Or yeah, it's supposed to be your mitzvah. That's what the mitzvah is. You're supposed to give at least half of it. Oh. I didn't know that. Yeah, and I kept like I was, 100 bucks and bought like I feel like a, I feel like I bought a, like the whole <laughs> offspring to sit. I, was like, I feel like a terrible person. I'm like, I'd just be banking this money. <laughs> Um, okay, so but but not like you know you were not raised in any kind of like orthodox. Strict. He's a quantum physicist, so every time we got some some religion in, he'd be like, "But the world is just like floating energy." Like, okay, <laughs> yeah, there's no it. God. Thanks. I'm more in line with that. So, um, okay, your girlfriend moves to California. Moves <laughs> to California. You're finally together in the same space. I feel like I'm seeing a patchwork of my life. Yeah, right now. That's what like we're trying to puzzles. do. We're trying to string it all together. Okay. Um, you're finally in the same space. I, I, I do have to ask you, like, once you guys were no longer separated by, uh, you know, a large physical distance, once the relationship transitioned from epistolary and, like, online mm-hmm. to actual, like, being together, was there an adjustment or was it pretty oh, natural? It's, it maybe just recently ended and it's been a year and a half. Really? Okay. Yeah. It wasn't bad, but it was, like, very much so her and I are very presently, like, constantly changing our views of one another. Yeah. trying to figure out how what exactly we got ourselves into because i remember <laughs> when she moved in and i we're, i remember us looking at each other and we were thinking the same exact thing you are a goddamn stranger <laughs> like we hooked up for two weeks in new york you disappeared and it's a year later and she just dropped out of grad school quit her job and like ended up in my apartment and now is getting like a job at like a juice shop yeah and so there was definitely this time of like what is going on like this like floating sense of things um, and so the, the adjustment was, was hard, but it was good because she was dependent on me for the, for a while. She didn't have her license, which is hard in LA. She never got her license. Right. The New York thing where so nobody teaching drives. someone to drive. You, you taught her how I to drive. I taught her how to drive in my car. Some of the most, like if we're, we got through that and we we're like, we're fine. And Los Angeles, not the easiest place to like, you know, cut your teeth. As Taking a the 10 to the 110. <laughs> right. right. 
and she's in my car and she's afraid to hit it. And Stick shift or uh, no? It's okay. Yeah, it's like okay. I was gonna say that could throw like an extra element in there. <sighs> it gets me sweaty just talking about it. it was so <laughs> it was like father daughter thing, and I had to be like, no, don't do that. I'm yeah, like, yeah. Pump the brakes. Yeah, but and you actually, forget how confusing it is backing up. You know, turning the opposite way. That's right. not a simple thing. Right. Parallel parking. Oh man. Um. Anyway, yeah. So what do you what do you want to do? Like you you said you were working at a juice shop. You're rolling the New York the New York out. You're doing. She worked the at the juice shop. Oh, she did. Yeah, you didn't. No, I didn't. Oh, okay. So I drank the juice. You drink. The, that's good. <laughs> Healthy girlfriend. Um. So what's the plan? Do you have one? I have a big plan. Okay. I don't know if I want to tell everybody the plan, but for now you got to tell us. Okay, we've come this far. I'll do my best to articulate it. Um. I want the New York to be a big publishing company where every single part of it is weird. So there's no author standing up and reading. There's no like standard signings. I kind of, um, you know, we've already been weird in, in that we have blind submissions. I totally hate cult of personality. Like when big writers try and contact me and are like, here's a piece and attach it. I'm like, submit blindly because I hate this whole idea that like, I'm a big writer. Like I can get into, what do you mean? They have to send it from like a dummy email they have, address? No, they have to go to submittable and they submit and it's blind oh. through there. Oh, right. Um, but I really, I want to, I want to challenge the powers that be in the literary world by doing things. Different. I don't know. You hear about bookstores closing down and there's this whole narrative right now that's starting to change. Thank God that yeah. books are dying and they're not, they're going huge. And when people say bookstores are dying, I'm like, Amazon was a bookstore and now they're killing it. There's lots of things you can do. Um, so I want to just kind of, if the work we publish is experimental, I want our business model to be experimental. So, you know, we're working on animations right now. We're going to start trying to convert many of the short stories we publish into animations. Um, I have a designer going through and turning them into posters. So we're going to sell them from the website and give the authors proceeds. So I'm just right now trying to play out with all the trillion ways you can take really strong stories and not only make money off of them, but pay authors and writers with them. And, and we're kind of a... Um, like finding ways to... I mean, I hate to use this verb. Monetize. Monetize yeah, the content. Unfortunately, it's... That's pretty much the word. I know. Money eyes, we should say, just because it's funnier. (laughs) But But um, I've I've actually thought of that because this is like, this is the trend right now. That's why I didn't want to tell you. Across all, but no, I mean, across all industries, you know, where there's like this endless need for content and everybody's becoming a content producer, but there are different ways to take, like you almost take like the principal, the, the principal content in the context of like literature. But then you talk about doing these animations. I've actually had that thought where it's mm-hmm. like, why don't people make, why don't authors make like really interesting, even narrative video content or complimentary content? And, you know, the, the uh, I think one of the uh, the responses to that, which I think you're addressing by way of animation, is that not all authors are good on camera. Yeah. <laughs> or have any Almost interest Almost none, <laughs> right. I'd say. Right. So you do it, but you do it via animation. It just, it's one more way for people to find out about the work. Mm-hmm. And it's one more way you can sell advertising on those videos. Is that For what you're sure. going to do? Things like that. Yeah. Exactly. And the, the poster thing's a good idea that we do these literary carnivals where we have actors memorize the pieces and come in and give them monologues. Who's we? Um, so for the carnivals, it's Michelle and I and sometimes this girl Vivian and I'm about to have a meeting after this for someone else. But um, for the carnivals, it's Michelle and I mainly. And then for the website, there's this guy Chuck who's in Boston, runs the whole thing. He's my best friend. Never met him. Um, you never met him? Never met him in person. Yeah. This is, you have a lot of these relationships. I do have a lot. <laughs> yeah. We just send each other letters. I have boxes of letters from Chuck. I've only been to a psychologist once and they told me that I love letters and writing because I said something once and somebody got mad at me. And ever since then, I'm way more comfortable with written word I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're here. I feel bad. No. Yeah. I'm really freaking out right now. <laughs> you want to just I told you I wanted to drink beer. Just like calm my nerves. 
Um, what was I talking about? Yeah, Chuck and then uh, Daniel Bullard Bates and Celeste Mora are in Portland and they do editing and then Celeste does publicity and sends out mailers and stuff. So but people, it's all it's, it's younger people, people in their 20s? Uh, we have moment. one guy, Steve Vermillion, who's a big part of it and he's, I think he's probably like 65. He's oh really? A, and he's in like Petaluma, California. Okay, but people in like investing, in general. investing time and energy, mostly gratis. Like, who's bankrolling this? My dad, yeah. my savings, and it's going better slowly. Like, yeah. it's bankrolling itself like, in terms of paying uh, my employees stipends and hosting the website and all that. That's covering itself finally. Really? Okay, so that's good. Um, but you, I mean, but like, and I, I don't mean to like invade your space. And Kickstarter. But, okay, so Kickstarter, but your dad is helping you bankroll. And the reason I think it's important to mention that is because people out there a lot of times wonder, like, why, or they feel deficient. Like, how do I do this? Like, you have to have some help to get something like this off the ground. You do. Right? Yeah. So, um, like, do, do you have, like, an agreement where it's like, you know, we need X amount of money? Or is it just, like, money as needed? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, because like, in order for it to succeed and in order to... To have the manpower and in order to be able to... Right now, it's I have to give a plan Yeah, how I'm going to spend it yeah. and then also a promise that I'm going to give it back. That's it. You think you're going to come through? Yeah. I <laughs> Otherwise, think... it's like, I'm going to go to another organic farm. <laughs> I mean, pretty much. Those are the options. I mean, I'm on my way. I give it... I've, I've done a lot of research on other publishing companies and how they started and... It takes a long time. Like yeah. the barrier of entry of selling literature has to be so high to pay even one person a living wage. Yeah. Well, like, and the, you know, but it's like you, you, if you have one book. I don't want to be a nonprofit. Like, no. But okay, but if you're doing experimental fiction and, or, you know, whatever. Like how that's, big can the market be? Yeah, it's a hard market. Well, things like our carnival isn't literary at all. It's a, it's freaking. Well, what's the carnival? It's a freaking madhouse. So we've done three so far, but uh, we do it at the Lyric Hyperion Cafe in L.A. And so there's an hour of carnival time. So there's booths. There's uh, you pay for somebody to write a poem to you. There's a canvas where you convert a piece from the book into like a visual art piece. There's uh, fictional uh, biographies where this guy asks you questions, kind of like a caricature, and then he writes you a fake biography. Right. And there's all sorts of literary games like that. And then it goes inside, and it's kind of like this. We call it a poetry reading through a madhouse mirror and we take out all the chairs out of a black box theater and fill it with uh carpets and everybody gets drunk and then there's usually a clown MC of some sort who comes out and recites pieces but then there's actors interweaved and then there's also games interweaved like mad libs this isn't this is a production yeah it's huge so how are you organizing all these people you just pick up the phone yeah write letters just write letters <laughs> a lot of letters yeah um that's it. That's it. You get actors to participate in this? We get actors to participate for free for beer and snacks backstage. I mean, it's not hard to find actors that might <laughs> in Angeles. LA. Yeah. yeah. That's a good that's And a good. so we post the pieces we want to be performed online and people send us videos and we're like, that's a good one. You're in. And we do it like that. So do you see this as a traditional, I mean, traditional in the sense that like you're going to do books and print. Obviously you have like these events and stuff to help supplement, but, or do you see it more as like a media company? Media company. Media company. That's Okay. That makes more sense. The, yeah. Especially We're registered as the New York Media Company, even though we have yet to grow into that name. Like LLC? Mm -hmm. You're going to do video? going to do video, working with some small... I'm going to do film contests in the future, and I'm going to keep it literary by everything being verbatim. So if we're doing a piece of art, a poster, verbatim. There's no added words. It's not an adaptation into film. It's just an interesting reading. Every word you hear in the films and the animations will be exactly as it was written. Okay. So that's how I'm going to keep it about the stories. Oh really? Yeah. So if you do it, like if you do, you ever want to make films? Yeah. Okay. So if you make if you, if you do like an experimental novel and you make a low budget feature film mm -hmm. adaptation, 
there will be no adaptation. It'll be verbatim. However it's done, I, I'll give the filmmakers free reign to do whatever they want as long as audio, the only thing you hear are the words that are in the story. Oh. When is this going to happen? Do you have anything in the works for a feature film? Um, Not for a feature film because all of our stuff's really short. $2 Radio is doing that now too. What's that? They started a film division. Okay. They're trying to kickstart. But I feel like that's coming. I mean, it's already here, but... Yeah, it's not. that's not creative or like experimental by any degree. Well, no, but, it's ex- it, but it is new and it is, I think, exciting and interesting that because the barrier to entry to becoming a film company has gone way down. So down. You know, and then it's like distribution is not a huge deal. Making money on it is. Is a big deal. Is a big deal. But I mean... We're making money off art right now. I buy and sell the art from the artists that submit to our website, like the physical pieces. Uh-huh. I didn't sell those on the website and on Etsy. Like prints? No, like originals. Okay. So like that's a good question, though. And that's like, working. Okay, that's working. But stick with what works. Because I find in my own uh, doings, you know, online and, and trying to be creative and come up with new ways to mm-hmm. uh, generate revenue, to keep the thing going, to keep the thing growing, like, you just start trying shit, you know? And so... It's about us having many, as many options as possible. That's what you think. Just, just, just everywhere. Like I, I was listening to your thing. It's like two bucks a month. Oh, you don't want that? Eight bucks a year. Who's right. going to say no to that? That's even the. You would be surprised. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, no. But I, I hope you know. Be. I mean, a lot of people have thankfully uh, done it. But I mean, like, thank you all. Thank you. But I mean, no. But you know, it's it's there are so many. I think in their defense, for the people who don't, it's like there's so many people coming at you, online. asking for little of things. Of course, yeah. of course. So you know, people have to be really invested, and they have to actually want the content and blah blah blah. But. Um, you also have to make it easy for people to say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you take something like, for example, Kickstarter, um, how's that gone for you? Like, do you, have you built up enough of a community around the New York that you feel like you have? It's guaranteed. It is. Yeah. You have that much goodwill generated? Um, the first one was mostly friends and begging. The second one had already like kind of blown up, I'd say, in terms of having enough people. What, what was your ask? Uh, so for this, for the first one it was like four grand, and we reached okay. that. But, so nothing uh, huge. For the next one, it was uh, nine, and we got like ten or eleven. And then for this recent one, it was ten, and we got uh, twelve. And what do you give people in return? Anything? Copy of the book. Copy of the book. So it's for each issue so far. You do print runs. Mm-hmm. How many? Three thousand. Do you have distribution? Uh, for book one and book two, we have distribution with like Ingram and Baker and Taylor and all that. But um, call me naive, but I'm going to try and avoid that. Like the new business plan is get a lot of, get a great website, get a lot of people on the website. And then if I do a print run of 500, have it pretty much guaranteed they will all sell. And right. that way I can make them really nice. They'll get out of the way and I can move on to the next book. And you don't have to share profit with Ingram. And, and I just hate that. I think it's such a scam, especially for small publishers. Yeah. I just can't deal with it. And I tried an experimental book distribution thing where I would ask our readers and writers to distribute for us. Yeah. I'd write them. I'd say, send me a list of stores around you. They'd send me the list. I'd send them pitches and sample books. And that worked for a little bit, but it's too much management. It's, I mean, but I mean, this is the thing for me. It's like I do the uh, POD, which mm-hmm. is a, it's a shitty business model in terms of making money on actual book sales, especially print. Right. Uh, well, uh, you know, exclusively print mm-hmm. uh, for POD. But it's like, um, I can't, you know, having boxes of books in my apartment and having to go to the mailbox or the post office. That's what I'm doing now. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't do it. It's I my just, only exercise. <laughs> well, but, you know, it's a good exercise. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, it's and it's and if you're selling books, if you're selling 500 books, that's a lot of trips Mm -hmm. you know but um that's the only way that you're probably going to make money yeah i'm okay with it for now yeah and and you do limited print runs Mm -hmm. you get them out there um so 20 years from now 
Like, yeah. are you, how, how how invested are you in this? Do you have like a timeline? Like, if this thing isn't making uh, X amount of money by 2016, I'm going to go do something else or go back to school. Or are you like I'm 100 percent in? I mean, sometimes when I have my strikes of insecurity, I'm like, I'm going to quit and work at a publishing company somewhere else. Because I, I worked at Random House and like, well, I didn't like it. I was steady and I was learning about books and it was fine. Yeah. Um, what, you think you would be an editor? Probably. Yeah. Editor, creative director. I like I liked the digital stuff. I'd probably want to work on some new digital frontier project. Yeah. You like the experimental, like the leading or the cutting edge. Yeah, just the changing. Uh-huh. I like when things are changing and there's no tradition. To, like have to fit into so tear it all down yeah break it down <laughs> destructive what's it called i was about to make up a term change agent change agent yeah change agent change agent <laughs> um what did you ask me oh yeah am i invested so yes i, I give it five years it's been three years so i have two more things. and who's like i mean you've got to be making a living or everybody who works there you know what i'm saying how does it how does it sustain itself well, I've been adding too many people to the team lately, so I'm going to keep it at this size for a Start while. Start firing people. Yeah. Time for layoffs. <laughs> I've already had to do that. <laughs> firing people I wasn't even, hadn't even hired. <laughs> I'm very sorry. <laughs> but I can't email you anymore. <laughs> um, I can't, exp- I can't conduct this long distance. Whatever this is. Yeah. I don't know what we are anymore. <laughs> um, so it's until I'm, I'm giving a living monthly wage to the people that are helping and to myself. Yeah. Um, I really don't know. Okay, what about? And then I think the reason I ask so many of these questions when I feel G force, yeah, seriously, it is when like things are just like Argh. no. But you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I you know, I feel like some people are better at it than I am. Some people are worse at it than I am. It's really hard what you're trying to do. It's so hard. So I admire you because I think like you know taking that leap. Uh, I understand something about that. I just I think it's like uh, admirable when somebody like comes up with an idea, builds something from scratch, sets out. You know, so hats off on that end. But like, you know, in terms of like actually trying to turn all of this into a profitable business, like, have you ever thought to yourself, like, maybe we need to do something more traditional? Like we need to publish books that have more commercial appeal. Seriously, art dealing is going to give us the thing that helps us grow and be able to do cool print projects. So maybe that's the bread and butter of the business. Selling is, I want to be an agency. I want the New York to be a free agency for authors and writers. Like in the future, I'd like to set up publicity tours for them free of charge. Just to, maybe they have to like mention the New York once, but like, oh, we have a writer in Pittsburgh. There's a reading here. Let's get them at that reading. Right. And I'd like to be an agency for that. And um, same with the with the with the artists. Host host a gallery of some sort. Buy their art if it sells. Reinvest it into them. Pay these artists for making amazing art. And you can make a lot of money on art. Well, see, that's the thing. That's the thing is that, uh, and then that was the plan. I could do crazy projects. I want to print all the New York books with poster pages that you can rip out and it's like poster sized. Well, stuff like that. Well, that's the thing is that like the business that you're describing, um, is like, has mutated as we've been discussing it and is, you know, it's already growing. It's already growing, but it's also like, unlike in its, you know, in its, uh, assembly, it's unlike anything. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it's like an art agency and the publicity thing for authors and a publishing house. Like the, these things are now all available to us. And like you could put this thing together. From my kitchen table. From your kitchen table. And you just have to figure out where the money comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, not because money is like the the driving motivation, but you do need it in order to keep the thing going. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I wish you well with that. Thank you, Keep sir. Keep me posted. Let me know how you, if you figure it out. So I, can, I will. I'll so invite you to the carnival it. in yeah, August. I want to do it too. <laughs> it's been fun talking with you. You too, man. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's Josh Rabb. Go check out the neweryork.com. Uh, it's also on Twitter. The handle's at TNY Press. It's got a Tumblr. It's on the Facebook. Uh, one of their latest titles is called The Inevitable June by Bob Schofield. The ebook is available now. The print edition is out on June 1st, and you can pre-order it right now. So go do that. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to visit killrockstars.com. And don't forget about the app, the free, official Other People app. It's available wherever apps are, uh, wherever they are available. Wherever apps are available, my app is available. (laughs) Uh, Whatever device you have, you can get the app for that device. That's my point. It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything Uh, You can also download episodes to listen to while you're offline. And best of all, best of all, you can access premium content and the show's full archives all via the app. So if you've been wondering, how do I get access to all of these shows? How do I get access to everything? You get the app, and and the app is free. And then once you have the app, you get the most recent 50 episodes of this podcast free of charge. And then if you want to access the other 220 Uh, some odd episodes in the archives you just sign up for premium right there inside the app you sign up inside the app it's two dollars a month or it's 4.99 4.99 for six months of access or it's 8.99 for the full year that's like 75 cents a month it's a no-brainer and uh, if you do uh, that you get access to everything every single episode of this program including conversations with Authors like Tom Parada, Ben Fountain, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, Edward Dantica, Sheila Hetty, Steve Allman, George Saunders, you name it. So please go get the Other People app. It's free. And then sign up for Premium, which is not free, but is cheap. And when you do that, you support this program for as little as 75 cents a month. I would appreciate that. So, uh, you know, I hope I don't sound ridiculous complaining about the uh, desert and the weekend away. I'm lucky to have been able to do that. I understand that. Quibbling over how people attend a music festival or eat uh, lunch around a hotel pool. I just noticed these things. I'm working on it. (laughs) Trying not to be curmudgeonly. But, you know, fish tacos and direct sunlight. It's never going to be okay. It's just not. I'm right on that one. I stand firm. Food like that should be eaten uh, in the shade, in cold temperatures. It should be nighttime. You should be shrouded in darkness. Please remember that David Hume was so heavy that he was known to crack chairs and that Antonio Gaudi died after being hit by a streetcar in Barcelona. That's it for now. Thanks again to Josh Rabb. Go check out the Newer York. I'll be back on Sunday with another episode of this program. I will deliver an episode despite uh, my upcoming trip to the Deep South because, uh, you know, I try to come through for you. I take this responsibility seriously. I have to deliver the content. I have to keep feeding the stray cats i hope you're having a good week Uh, it's springtime it's the season of hope and uh, fertility anything could happen things are blooming people are dressing less the sun has returned to the sky Uh, i like spring it's the thing before the thing Um, by comparison i don't really like summer because summer is the thing and uh, similarly to spring i like fall because it's the thing before the thing and winter is the thing you know what i mean the thing before the thing is almost always better than the thing (laughs) 